Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Caleb Sharp will join us to discuss gravity's engine. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show. Well, black holes are terrifying yet awesome constituents of the cosmos. And in his new book, Gravity's Engine, Dr. Caleb Scharf definitely tells you all you wanted to know about black holes as well as all you never knew you wanted to know. Well, joining us today to talk about this is Dr. Caleb Scharf. He's the director of the Columbia Astrobiology Center. He writes the Life Unbounded blog for Scientific American, has written for New Scientist, Science, and Nature, among other publications, and has served as a consultant for the Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, and several other sources. He's been a keynote speaker for the American Museum of Natural History and Rubin Museum of Art, and is the author of Extrasolar Planets and Astrobiology, which is the winner of the 2011 Shambliss Astronomical Writing Award for the American Astronomical Society. His new book, again, is called Gravity's Engines, How Bubble-Blowing Black Holes Rule Galaxies, Stars, and Life in the Cosmos. And Dr. Scharf, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a a fascinating book you've written, uh, Gravity's Engines. Why did you decide to write this book? That's a good question. Part of the the reason for wanting to write this book was that it's representative of something I think is very interesting in science in general, which is that there are very strange phenomena, bizarre phenomena in the universe, they're biological, astrophysical, or whatever, that at first sight, when we discover them or when we dream them up, we tend to think they're largely irrelevant, think that they're, they're remarkable things, but they're kind of in the background. They're not playing a central role in very much. And as time goes by, very often I think we discover that actually bizarre and peculiar phenomena are actually rather important. And black holes really fit that bill very nicely. These are things that were an entirely theoretical conception to start with, and then over time discovered more and more very good evidence that these are real things in our universe. And and then the, the story I really wanted to tell in the book is the ongoing story where we've now learn that not only are they real, but they seem to play a rather critical role in quite literally making the universe appear the way it does to us today. So that that was my primary motivation. You know, this has been driven by technology, uh, it's been driven by many, many scientists working on on the question of where did everything come from. It's really adding another layer to our whole picture of cosmology. We have cosmology as described by the Big Bang model, which is extremely successful in, in explaining many of the features we see of our universe, but there are a lot of other layers to that. So, for example, why are there as many galaxies as we see in the universe? Why are they the size they are? Why do they contain the number of stars that they contain? And and so these are, these are the extra questions that, that we want to try to answer. And it turns out that the black holes are important for answering those questions. The, the common perception has been, and then to some extent still is, that black holes are just these, these dark endpoints in the universe. 
and we've learned a number of very important things. First of all, we've learned that black holes can be enormous. A small black hole is maybe 10 times the mass of our sun, and those sorts of black holes are produced by old stars, big old stars that eat through their nuclear fuel, and then they collapse because there's nothing supporting them. They've used up all their fuel. They're not producing energy anymore. But we've now learned that there are super versions of black holes, supermassive versions of black holes that may be millions of times the mass of our sun, maybe even tens of billions of times the mass of our sun. And these objects seem to live in the center of pretty much every galaxy in the universe. So that's very interesting. But we've also learned that objects are extremely efficient at actually producing energy, energy that rushes back out into the universe. So instead of black holes being these not black things, these dark points of no return, it now appears that as stuff falls into them, but before it reaches that point of no return, which is called the event horizon around these objects, a tremendous amount of energy is produced. And a good analogy is the water going down the plug hole in your bath. Very often that will gurgle. Sometimes it gurgles really loudly. And the reason is that energy of motion is being converted into sound waves. And the sound waves can escape. The sound waves can escape before vanishing down, down the drain. And kind of the same thing happens around black holes. If matter falls towards them, it could be anything. It could be a planet. It could be a star. It could be a cloud of gas. It is tremendously accelerated, often torn apart. And all of that process transfers that energy of motion into other forms, like light and subatomic particles that can escape from around the black hole because they haven't quite reached that event horizon yet. So our new picture of black holes is they can be big, really big, and they actually can produce energy. Something very fascinating happens at the event horizon, the site where some energy can escape, and is it possible for things that cross the event horizon to escape the black hole? So we think that if anything makes it across the event horizon, it's gone for good. That's really the definition of the event horizon. It is the place at which events can no longer be observed if you're standing outside. So you know, the event horizon is like a shield. We think the black holes form when matter in the universe becomes so densely packed that it distorts space around itself to such an extent that even light can't escape. Now, it doesn't slow light down. What it does is it stretches light. And so light emitted just outside the event horizon can still escape, but it gets somewhat stretched. If you have light emitted from within the event horizon, it can never be seen by the outside universe because it is stretched away to nothingness. It's like taking a, a wavy rope and pulling it tight. And when it flattens out, effectively it's gone. Effectively that wavy structure is gone and that wavy structure is light. So we think that anything, light included, that passes across the event horizon is gone for good. We, we won't ever see it again in this universe. What happens to matter as it falls towards a black hole can vary a little bit. Um, very often, that matter is going to be torn apart by gravitational tides. And so this is the phenomena where if you fall towards a black hole, and if it's a smallish black hole, what you'll find is that if you fall, for example, feet first, your feet will experience a far greater gravitational pull than your head. So there's a gradient in gravity. And that gradient can be so strong that it can tear stuff apart into its constituent atoms. So a lot of stuff that falls towards a black hole will be torn apart in that way. What also happens is stuff tends to swirl around a black hole, just like water going around in, in the drain, in the sink, or in the bathtub. 
and matter will swirl around. It, it tries to orbit the black hole, but if it gets too close, there's in fact no stable orbit for matter. So it inevitably spirals into the black hole. But if you imagine lots of stuff doing this at the same time, it's, it's bumping up against each other, it, it's crashing, and there's turbulence. It's a very frothy, violent uh, sort of whirlpool around, around the black hole. And so you know, stuff gets turned into its constituents before it reaches the event horizon. Once it goes into the event horizon, we really don't know what happens to it. <laughs> we think that it, it all has to travel to the absolute center of the black hole, but there we run into problems describing what goes on because there we run into the question of how gravity works on microscopic scales. If everything is compacted down at the center of a black hole to essentially a microscopic scale, we know that current theory of gravity through general relativity doesn't work on the microscopic scale because we're entering the quantum world. And in fact, space itself may be somewhat granular at that level. And so that's why people are trying to find a way to, to meld our description of gravity with our description of the quantum world, but nobody has managed to do that yet. And black holes provide conundrum that physicists are trying to meld the two theories of physics. Right. I think if you talk to someone who studies string theory, for example, they'll tell you that, in fact, string theory has had some successes, at least in terms of just explaining certain theoretical paradoxes and certain theoretical proposals. And so, yeah, string theory and black holes are, are quite intimately related. There are questions to do with the nature of information, whether a black hole destroys information or merely scrambles it. And then, then there are the questions of what, what really lives at the center of a black hole. Right? You know, we don't have complete answers yet, but they definitely they play a role in that sort of very specialized theoretical work, for sure. This issue of black hole information, uh, the subject of a, uh, a bet with Stephen Hawking? Well, it, it, it's funny. I, you know, Stephen Hawking, I think, over the years, has made two different bets about black holes. And I think the first one he made was with the physicist Kip Thorne back in the 1970s. And Hawking proposed that, or bet that a black hole candidate discovered in our galaxy was probably not a black hole, whereas Kip Thorne said that it probably was a black hole. And so I, they, they made some bet, and Hawking lost that one. It turns out that this, this object almost certainly is a black hole. I think later on, Hawking made a bet with some of the architects of string theory, and this was to do with the question of information loss. And my understanding is that he may have lost that bet as well. So I, I, I don't know the details, though. <laughs> Well, many different sizes of black hole and uh, massive ones is thought to reside at the uh, center of our galaxy. Right. So the black hole at the center of our galaxy is, is a relatively modest-sized one. We think it's about 4 million times the mass of the sun. And we can tell that because we can watch the orbits of stars around the center of our galaxy and deduce the mass interior to them. And it seems to fit the bill to be about 4 million times the mass of our sun. The black hole in the center of our galaxy is not eating a great deal of matter, at least not at the moment. But if we look out in the universe, we find places where there are black holes of billions of times the mass of our sun actively consuming matter and producing huge amounts of energy. And in many of these cases, the energy comes out in the form of these very narrow jets or beams of subatomic particles, like electrons. And it's almost as if you took the Large Hadron Collider and you unfurled it and you kind of used it like a hose pipe and sprayed it out into the universe, except on an even bigger scale. What we think happens with that energy is that it can actually go into 
regulating the way in which the galaxy that hosts all of this makes stars. That energy actually kind of holds back star formation because it tends to heat up the surrounding intergalactic material. That material is trying to condense into making new stars and even new galaxies, but the energy being pumped out by the black hole can hold that at bay. So this is an interesting relationship that we seem to be seeing between the supermassive black holes and the propensity of a system for making new stars. And it's kind of a big, it's a big cosmic dance. It's a back and forth between energy and gravity. And the black holes seem to play a, a pivotal role in keeping the balance a certain way. If you didn't have those black holes, the universe would have made many more stars than it actually has over the last 13 billion years or so. So we think that the, the energy produced from around black holes squirts out into space. Sometimes it even creates these huge bubble-like structures that actually help prevent the universe from kind of getting carried away with making stars and making galaxies. So the reason the universe looks the way it does is because of black holes? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to make that claim. I think, you know, more realistically, it is that the universe would look different, didn't have these black holes. And what we don't quite know yet is just how different it would look. Suspicion is, my suspicion is that it would look really quite different. We would have overgrown galaxies with far more stars than, than we actually see. It's very hard to put specific numbers to this, but I think over the, the coming years we'll, we'll have a much better idea of this and we'll be able to say more clearly whether it's dominated by black hole behavior or whether it, black holes are just one big component in amongst a number of phenomena that are at play. If you tweak the fundamental physical constant, I guess you could tweak them in a way that could conceivably turn everything into black holes. If you tweak them in such a way that gravity is a little bit stronger, um, you, might, you might create a lot more black holes. And uh, the question then would be whether there would still be enough matter around to, to generate the energy that would then feed back and keep things in check. But yeah, it, it, it's probably true. If you, if you played around with any of the fundamental constants a little bit, you, you, would, you would create a different landscape for black holes and you'd create a very different landscape for the way galaxies look and the number of stars. And you could even create a universe where you don't make stars at all and you don't make black holes at all. We don't know exactly what combination of fundamental constants that would require. The current nature of black holes is, as we understand it, seems to be related to certain situations where galaxies are kind of shutting down their production of new stars. And our Milky Way may be one of those systems. This is something I talk about in the book, and it's kind of a, an open-ended question at the moment. Uh, the, the black hole at the center of our galaxy hasn't seemed to be too active. It hasn't seemed to be producing a particularly great influence over what's going on in our galaxy. But we're now realizing that the Milky Way galaxy is probably in its middle age as galaxies go. And it, it's, it's probably shutting down the production of new stars. And if it's not making new stars, it's not making new planetary systems and so on. And the black hole in the center of the galaxy may have something to do with that. It may actually have been rather more active in the last few hundred thousand years or millions of years than we expected. So I think in terms of where the universe is going right now, I suspect that we're seeing a stage where many galaxies are kind of finished. 
are making new stars. They still have many stars, but those those are going to be the, the ones that they're going to have forever. Now, we also know from cosmology that the universe appears to be expanding at an ever-increasing rate. And this is the, the issue of dark energy, the accelerating universe. What that means is that in the far, far distant future, trillions of years in the future, we may get to a point where every galaxy is essentially completely isolated from every other one. In fact, they may not even be able to see each other because that expansion will have accelerated to a point where light won't be able to reach across between the galaxies. The, the, light, tra the travel speed of light won't be sufficient to overcome um, the gulf of expanding space between the galaxies. And then you can imagine that over time what's going to happen is the black hole in the center of each galaxy is going to gradually grab those stars, grab whatever is left in each galaxy, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's possible that the distant future is a very dark place that is going to consist largely of isolated supermassive black holes, and those places won't be able to see any other places. That's kind of a long-winded answer. <laughs> Sounds like a very, very dark future. <laughs> is there a uh, limit to how massive uh, any of these supermassive black holes can get? <laughs> That's a great question. It's interesting. If you look at the equations of general relativity that can describe an object like a black hole, there's nothing in those equations that says there's a limit to the mass. Okay? The equations simply describe how mass distorts space around it. So there's no obvious limit there. However, we think there may be a practical limit in the real universe. And that practical limit comes because as black holes get bigger and bigger, when you throw matter onto them, when they try to eat new matter, they generate energy. And that generation of energy can get more efficient as the black hole gets bigger. And the energy blowing off from around the black hole can actually force back new matter. It's a good analogy is like a big bonfire. You have a bonfire and you're trying to put new material on it to stoke it. But as you put new material on it, the bonfire gets hotter and hotter, so you have to step back further and further. And it gets more and more difficult to throw that last branch or, or twig onto the fire. And we think a similar kind of mechanism takes place around black holes. And that would put their upper mass at around 20 to 30 billion times the mass of our sun which is very interesting because that seems to match pretty much the, the largest ones that we've managed to detect so far. Um, so the, the, the upper limit to a black hole, realistically, may be 20 or 30 billion times the mass of the sun. It's uh, staggering to think about. Uh, where, where's the largest black hole that's been discovered? That's a good question. I, I can't tell you the precise name. You know, we, astronomers are, are bad at coming up with names that are memorable for many of the, the galaxies and places we discover. They, they tend to be given names like M87 and M101 and, and so on. There are a few galaxies in a relatively nearby universe where astronomers think they have seen black holes of this kind of size, and they, they detect them by looking... Uh, in part of the energy produced if matter is falling into them, but they can also find them by looking at the motion of stars in the center of these galaxies. And the velocities of those stars can reveal if there's something very big in the middle holding it all together. You know, there's a, there's a sort of poetic side to this, and uh, this won't sound very scientific, but I think it kind of captures the essence of it, which, which is very interesting because the universe is a complex place. 
And uh, I like to think of black holes a bit like predators. And uh, here on Earth, we've tended to, when we find predators, when we discover predators, we tend to be very afraid of them, and we tend to pigeonhole them as dreadful things that are to be avoided at all possible costs. Then later on, we discover they're actually really beautiful, and they're really vital pieces of our environment. They, they play a critical role in our environment. And I think that's, that's a pretty good description of, of black holes as we understand them now, that, that they are fearsome, they are strange and awful places, but they're also kind of beautiful. And they also seem to play this role in producing the conditions out of which we've come. At some level, our current cosmic circumstances owe something to the nature of black holes. Well, it is certainly fascinating to think about, and the new book is called Gravity's Engines, How Bubble-Blowing Black Holes Rule Galaxies, Stars, and Life in the Cosmos. And the author is Dr. Caleb Scharf. Dr. Scharf, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. And you were just listening to Dr. Caleb Scharf discussing the Gravity's Engine. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Okay, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what type of star would they be? So, for the falling five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know uh, if they were a type of uh, star in the universe, what type of star would they be and why? And, Dr. Sharp, you ready to play the game? I'll give it a try. All right, person number one, what type of star would he be? It's the talk show host, Jerry Springer. <laughs> type of star would Jerry Springer be? Hmm. You know, I, I would have to say he would be a blue giant. And the reason for saying a blue giant is a blue giant is kind of hot and a little bothered, and it can kind of disrupt things around it. And I think that that's a fair description of, of how Jerry Springer behaves. <laughs> Uh, I think anyone who's seen his show would probably have to agree. Okay, number two, Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger Woods. Hmm. Okay. You know, I, I would say, and this is actually, I, this works pretty well. I think I would say Tiger Woods is like our sun. He's a G dwarf star. And the reason for saying that is a G dwarf star like our sun spends most of its time looking absolutely fabulous and innocuous and is very good at what it does until... You get to a certain point, and then it all goes to hell. <laughs> and uh, probably never recovers from that. <laughs> can, I, can I say that? <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, number three. Uh, what type of star would he be? It's the uh, physicist Stephen Hawking. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I'd have to say that, that Stephen Hawking has to be something like a neutron star, which is a very, very compact remains of a, a much bigger star that once burned brightly. But a neutron star is also an extraordinary object. It's an object of extreme possibility, and it's an object of extreme energy. It produce things like pulsars, which is a very regular beating output of, of radio waves. And we've learned an enormous amount from neutron stars about physics and about the nature of relativity. And so I think that that's a fairly good match to someone like Stephen Hawking. Indeed, indeed. Okay, number four, what type of star would she be? It's the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. 
Lady Gaga. Well, it has to be something outrageous. <laughs> so I, I would say Lady Gaga might be like the most outrageous types of stars we know of, which are enormous. They're maybe 200 times the mass of our sun. They burn very, very bright, but maybe they only burn very bright for a certain amount of time. But certainly while they do, they're extremely entertaining. Okay, and finally, number five, uh, uh, what type of star would he be? It's uh, the actor Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> let's see. What kind of star would Tom Cruise be? Yeah, I, I would say Tom Cruise might be a bit like a white dwarf star. So a white dwarf star is not very big. It's, it's kind of hot, but you have to be really careful what you do with it. If you put too much mass on it, it goes supernova. I have a feeling that that's a pretty good match for someone like Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think it's uh, spot on, really. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Dr. Scharf, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and, and again talking about your book, which is called Gravity's Engines, How Bubble-Blowing Black Holes Rule Galaxies, Stars, and Life in the Cosmos. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.